Hold on. Yes, but it seems to be going through it several times because I hear you. <laughs> I hear you. I mean, this, this is going to be the cross chatter from, from the, the problem, problem is Sam's headphones is not, are not designed to. But they're wireless, so I can go far away. Can you? Bluetooth has a free Why don't we just. What about this? I'm going to lock myself in your bathroom, Shishon. How's how's this working? Can, Sam, can you? Because can, I can't hear you, and you can't hear me. Oh, <laughs> I can hear. Wait, no, I can. I can hear you, Sean. Or myself. So I can hear you. Hi, Sean. Hi, Derek. Hi, Sam. Hi, Derek. Hi, Sean. So, Sam. For a couple months, you've been periodically asking, when am I coming back on the podcast? <laughs> and then you showed up at my house with a microphone, yep. demanding to be let on the podcast. So sure. uh, presumably you have something incredibly pressing. Well, I, mean... I think there's a lesson here. The lesson is if you want to come on the podcast, you have to find where Sean lives. <laughs> and show up with a microphone. Bring your own microphone and your, that we can't yeah. configure. And then you get to just record it from Sean's bedroom. It's fine. I... <laughs> I actually have a programming topic that I think we can talk about. So I recently released the RFC for how I'd like to change aspects versioning to sort of more closely mirror Rails, because for a long time now, aspect Rails specifically has supported Rails 3 upward, and that is becoming incredibly unsustainable now. So the basics of my proposal are that RSpec will track Rails versions, and every time a Rails version gets released, we'll drop a major if we need to drop Rails versions. Hmm. And I don't know if either of you have read it, but I really want to drop support for Ruby 1.8.6 and Rails 3. And wait, wait, wait. An you RFC. support 1.8.6? Not even just 1.8.7, you support 1.8.6? I, uh, no, sorry, yes, 1.8.7. Okay. <laughs> I do think that it is actively harmful is maybe a little stronger than I intend, but I, I, I do think it is bad for end-of-life software to continue to be supported by other libraries. Sure. Well, um, here's my, were you talking specifically about RSpec Rails or RSpec as a whole? RSpec Rails. And actually, okay. part of the RC is taking RSpec Rails' versioning out of lockstep with RSpec, the rest of its versioning, uh, so that the version numbers will actually mean different things. I think that piece of it makes sense on its own, no matter what. Because RSpec Rails presumably needs to get bumped whenever Rails gets bumped and not necessarily whenever RSpec gets bumped. Yes. Yeah, that part makes sense. And I kind of, I'm inclined to agree with Sean that like continuing to support old versions on newer versions of RSpec, like I'm trying to come up with a scenario where you would be stuck on an old version of Ruby or Rails and need to have the latest version of RSpec in order to continue right. to successfully work. Like in general... I applaud the idea that old versions of developer, like developer tools in particular, continue to support old versions of software. But at some point, there becomes a there there comes a time where the cost of that support is is too high. Even if it's not incredibly high, like code wise, just having to like it's, sure. it's incredibly high, like running the test suite against twenty seven thousand right. different versions and like and things like that. Yes, that actually is is my core motivation. Is that I would like to be able to deliver. Aspect Rails features in less than like a one and a half hour CI run. And the reason it takes that long is because we have to run against all Rails versions higher than three and all Ruby interpreters higher than 187, right? So it's like a 95 minute Travis build or something. 
Yeah, I can empathize with that a little bit. I mean, the, I maintain stuff that supports back to one nine two, I think. Sure. And from Rails three zero or three, I think three one, maybe three zero, all the way up to today. But that's not nearly the same matrix, and also not used by nearly the same amount of people. Which of your gems is this? Clearance. Sure. Is there any reason for Clearance to still support Rails 3? No, there's no reason. Uh, And it just becomes more and more ridiculous as we go on. The reason is like, I want to bump the major version once and not twice, but I really should probably just go ahead and bump the major version with just the removal of like old code. And then maybe also like, there's a bunch of weirdness in how users get created because I have to support a scenario where you may have, what's the old way of protecting against mass assignment? Oh, uh, uh, add, attributes. Yeah, yeah adder, adder accessible. Yeah, yeah so you may accessible, have like adder yeah. accessible, or you may have strong parameters. So instead of doing either one of those things, I do like actual assignments, and it causes people problems when they want to customize what happens. Why don't you just right. pull in strong parameters as a gem? Yeah. Would that even work with? Well, whatever. Any, either way, I'm just going. <laughs> <laughs> I think the very next thing I have on my list of things that I would like to do is to just like I've been kind of neglecting clearance because I don't. I'm not entertained by it right now, uh, but I need, sure. I need to get back to it and like fix a few bugs that have come up that people really want fixed and probably go ahead and um, release a 2.0 version that like lessens the maintenance burden by getting rid of as much deprecated stuff as I can. I will say my intent was to literally just release uh, a version of RSpec where all that changes is the Travis.yaml and it's like 3.2 is not supported anymore. Surprise, right? <laughs> mm-hmm. I've had conversations with Caleb about that too, specifically with regards to Scenic. And he was like, I don't want to support these anymore. He wasn't thinking like, I don't want to support it as in like this gem won't install, but as in like, we won't run it on CI and therefore it is unsupported. Like if it doesn't work, sorry. But I don't know. I kind of feel like if you're not supporting it, you should not allow it to run. It's different for a development tool than something that runs at runtime, I feel like. Right. So like if the development tool doesn't Y'all work. Y'all know um, what David wants to, wants Gems to start doing, right? With with versioning? No, what does he want? He wants Gems to stop putting an upper bound on their Rails dependency. Yeah, I'm cool with that. I've stopped doing that a long time ago. Really? <laughs> yeah. It's like if you try and update Rails and it breaks, then like... I mean, it depends. I guess it depends on the gem. Well, I mean, this is no different than... I mean, this is you were just arguing that if you don't support it, it shouldn't run. And therefore, you should bump your lowest supported version. That was what you just said a second ago. How is this any different? I just feel like it's a little bit... Uh, I guess it. I guess it's not on a sufficiently old enough new release of Rails, but on like a brand new... Re- like if on day one you upgrade to a new version of Rails and you're able to install this gem and it doesn't work, you're not exactly surprised, right? It's not like, oh, okay, well, there's probably an issue in Rails don't necessarily 5, know what gem it is. It's true. Yeah. So I will say with Rails 5.2... So Aspect Rails does not put an upper bound on the Rails version installs. And so when 5.2 got released, uh, I was like, does this actually work? And the answer is mostly yes. There is one deprecation warning that gets printed inside your green dots, uh, which we should probably fix. And there was one test that I had to fix in Aspect Rails, but like none of the production code changed. Um, and so that's like really cool, right? And that's a really good argument to not put that upper band there. Well, I mean, and that's really cool when that is what happens. But that could sure. also just as easily have been like you did that. Oh, cool, it works. Release a, a new patch version with the increased upper uh, band. Sure. Because the problem is when things break, because we live in a Ruby world where everything is is monkey patching everything and and interacting in all sorts of strange ways. 
instead of it being that you know this gem only sports up to 5.1 it could just be some failure that looks like it's from active record but is actually caused by one of three gems that are not updated sure and i'm in the lucky position where my code doesn't run in production so i don't have to worry about it (laughs) i do think that there's like I'm trying to think through the times where I try and upgrade a major version of Rails or even a minor version of Rails on client projects and things like that. And I feel like I'm, I more often run into the issue where I can't successfully update because somebody has unnecessarily restricted a Rails version than I mm-hmm. run into the issue where I can't successfully upgrade because the gem doesn't work with the new version of Rails. The former is really... Like it's because there's a lot of gems out there that are just like really small gems that don't do a ton and they don't like monkey patch anything. They don't like I'm trying to sure. think of an example right now, but I, off the top of my head, I, like the, it's the long tail of gems, right? It's not the R spec. It's this gem is used by a few thousand people kind of thing right. where the maintainer isn't actively doing anything anymore, really, except merging patches when new versions of Rails come out that say like, hey, you've got to update this. Yeah, I still think that there's a lot of use, though, in the specific feedback of when a gem has been confirmed to work with a given version of rails like this seems like it could be more easily solved by a feature in ruby gems or bundler like gem whatever yolo true <laughs> right and i think that i don't remember what mix calls it or i or what's the mix is the thing you what is the uh, hex hex is the elixir one there's yeah. a way to say like force true like that's the yolo option where you can right. say like i know it's going to think that it, it shouldn't install on this version but you but go ahead you can do that um, Interesting. And how often those are all those you? would still be looked at things. I don't know how often it bites me. I don't do enough Elixir right now to say, but like sure. it's been useful because I then I don't have to fork the project, point at my GitHub uh, fork, and then submit the right. patch and things like that. But I still want to do that. It's still a thing that would bother me. Like if I had to do that in my gem file where I said like force true or YOLO true or whatever it was. But it, it, at least then it's something that you opt into and not just stuff breaks and good luck trying to figure it out. I guess the other thing is you could flag a single gem as YOLO, right. and then Bundler right. could yes. work out. Yeah, that's exactly what I was talking about. You do that on the, on the specific yeah. single package level. This discussion is actually extremely relevant to my life, uh, because <laughs> I am currently in process of upgrading the last Rails 3.2 application at DigitalOcean to like something modern. And once I something finally modern, got... Something modern, like 4.1. No, it's Phoenix. We're going to start with... <laughs> um but no once i like finally resolved all the gem conflicts right i typed like bundle and it's just sat there grinding for a handful of minutes while it's like finally resolving all of these dependencies because like that's a hard problem it's np hard right anyway the point i was sort of making is that like doing all of those conflict resolutions i don't know how many of those were necessary right and even though 3.2 3.2 is now long dead. Like, did I really need to upgrade the like concurrency gem or like i18n? Like, who knows? Well, I mean, that's that gets down into more of the fundamental differences between like you right. know in Rust or Node, where those are are internal dependencies. You can just have multiple versions, no problem. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, I still don't think anybody's actually quite solved this issue. Perfectly, because then the, the flip side of that is if you have two external dependencies that get resolved to different versions, and then in Node, potentially things blow up, or in Rust, your code just won't compile. 
Right. There are, like, specifically, Sam mentioned, like, the IE10N gem getting updated when you update other gems. There's actually a flag that I learned about in Bundler when you run, like, if you run bundle update rails or whatever. By default, if multiple things in your gem file depend on, I think it's if they if they have shared dependencies, so I guess if they both depend on rails, then those dependencies mm-hmm. get re-resolved as well, which may get you an updated version of those gems. But if you, right, it's if the you, whole tree. If you pass the conservative flag, it does not allow shared dependencies to get updated. So it tries to just update the gem that you that you passed it. Which oh, uh, so like if I bundle update Rails hyphen hyphen conservative, it will like only update Rails and things that immediately transient from that that nothing else depends on. Yes, exactly. So if you have two things in your app that depend on IE10N, that won't get updated. I wish I had known about this. Right. It comes in handy when you like run the first thing without dash conservative, dash dash conservative, and something breaks. And so you're like, oh, I guess I need to add a restriction in my gem file to like this IE10N gem or whatever the case may be. I probably wouldn't have been IE10N, but something I'm trying to remember like sure. SAS. I think I, like I mean, at I'm one point SAS Rails was giving us problems. Yeah. And it was like, oh, yeah. you don't need to actually add a specific constraint on SAS Rails. You can just bundle update dash dash conservative and you'll be okay. Yeah. Or whatever the case may be. It was something that wouldn't have appeared in your gem file. SAS Rails probably does, but Yeah. I was just mostly impressed that like this this bundle took like a good four or five minutes to resolve. And I, then I was reminded, as Sean pointed out, this is a really hard unsolved problem in computer science. Um, <laughs> yeah. So yeah. One of the other things that really bothers me when it comes to Rails upgrades uh, is that Bundler will totally let you resolve a version of the PG, MySQL, or SQLite gems that are completely incompatible with the version of Rails that you're using. That's because Rails doesn't have a way to specify an optional dependency, right? Right. So it's n- nowhere in any of our gem specs does it specify, you know, that those are gems that work that we use or what versions we support. It's just like at runtime needs to be in your gem file. Right. And, and so do you do runtime version checks? Yeah. I mean, we just do like we just call gem at the top. The first line of the PostgreSQL adapter is gem PG greater than or equal to 0.18 less than 2.0. Um, and then require PG. And that works fine as long as it is in your gem file. But it's just one of those, like, it'll blow up early. You know, it blows up when your app boots. But it's it's just one of those, bundle should have failed. I ran into that. I don't remember what it was. I think I was trying, while I was preparing the migrations talk, I was trying to, like, test out MySQL or something. And so I just, like, switched the adapter to MySQL, not thinking, like, oh, I obviously also have to gem install the MySQL 2 gem. But like, mm-hmm. I, then I just ran the app and it exploded like that. And I was like, I was looking at it. I was like, why didn't it? Why didn't Bundler? Oh, wait, because I didn't do anything with like, this is just weird. Like, speaking of MySQL, I have recently been going through the deep, deep pain of moving from MySQL 5.5 to 5.6. And every single one of my rubies, I've had to recompile my MySQL gem because they got compiled against the system MySQL. And so if you try to connect to a database at a different version, it just won't connect. And like for a while there at Do, we had transient MySQL versions in production, and this is a nightmare. Right, because their their wire protocol is not stable. Right, it changes between like minor versions of MySQL. Yeah, <laughs> I just saw ah. that my so MySQL went from five point seven to eight point oh. What's the story there? <laughs> what happened to six and seven? Um, Java versioning. <laughs> you go you go 1.4, So basically Percona and uh, MariaDB is what happened. There were ideological conflicts over what should happen with major version six. And then uh, I guess made I, I, I thought it was gonna be seven and I guess it's eight now, but um 
there were then also ideological differences around what should happen with major version 7 and so you know php did the same thing they were like php 6 will happen when we solve unicode in the language so they released mysql 7 (laughs) (laughs) it's the same sort it was the same sort of thing but um basically if if i remember correctly maria db is mysql 6 and i guess just out of respect they skipped that major version wikipedia says work on version 6 stopped after sun acquired mysql right and that's when maria db forked there's another product called mysql cluster which uses the version 7 and then when they needed another version number, they decided to avoid the confusion with MySQL cluster seven and jump to eight. Interesting. Okay. Yeah. But you're saying you're getting all sorts of issues just going from five six or five six to five seven, Sam? Yeah, basic basically I try to connect <laughs> to a database in Ruby and it immediately exits with uh, client version is five point five, server version is five point six. We refuse to continue. Oh yeah. That's yep. awful. <laughs> yeah. It, it, it's almost like versioning your wire protocol separately from your client and server versions is a good idea. And continuing to accept connections from older client versions is a good idea. Who, who'd have thunk it? It wouldn't be a huge issue if it were just like, I at work, I write one application and I need to connect to its database. And like, oh, okay, I guess my client version needs, but like, where you're connecting to several different versions of databases. Oh, sure. <laughs> like, <laughs> that's a problem. I mean, distributed microsystems architecture, my friend. That's how you build a, a web app. <laughs> uh, unfortunately, by what I heard from people speaking about it, RailsConf, you're right. So. <laughs> <laughs> oh, really? I did not go to many distributed system talks. I didn't go to many of the talks. I just heard lots of people talking about, still talking about like microservices and stuff like that. Sure. I will say this. I think the theme that I've observed most recently is people speaking at conferences about how their Rails app got too big, their team got too big, it was painful to work on. And so instead of doing microservices, they did something else. And like, I always cringe at the something else because I'm like, you have actually just ruined your Rails application. Or they like, just do like traditional SOA. There are There is a middle ground between monolith and microservice that isn't terrible. Right. But like try explaining nuance to people on the internet. Sure. So that middle ground being like you don't have to have like a user service and account service of this service. You can right. have like more meaty things than that. Yeah. Like, right. for example, a service at Shopify that's always been somewhat-ish isolated more so than other things is shipping. Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. And we also have a team called shipping, and the shipping team works on the on the shipping component, and and pretty much is able to just work on that one piece of it. That that's where I think like SOA done right happens is where it's more it's less of a technical choice; it's an organizational one, and your service oh, boundaries are drawn along team boundaries. Yeah, no, I completely agree with you. The advice I give people is when you have a Rails app and you feel like you're, you're having trouble working on it, is what's something small you can identify and split off easily, and then turn that into a service. I'd also right. like to clarify that services don't necessarily have to have HTTP boundaries between them. Sure, they can have gRPC boundaries between <laughs> them. <laughs> you know, it doesn't have to be over the network. It can be a process boundary, or I mean, sure. I know some people like to use Rails engines as a, as a separation and even keep it in the same process. Yeah, I put that in the category of you have ruined your Rails app. I agree that it's probably not the greatest thing to do, but especially as an intermediate step, it, I think it makes a lot of sense. Assuming, yeah, assuming that you're not going to do a big bang rewrite. Yeah, the thing I'm actually more interested in talking about is like why doing services is hard is like a meme. 
because it is, but like the way people think it's hard is not the way it's hard. So like a lot of the things I think people struggle with are like stories around, well, what do we do if this thing is down? Like, how do we make sure these things are talking to each other correctly? What's a good thing to split off? And like, there's good writing about all of that, but it's not bounced around the rail sphere at all as far as I can tell, actually. And so like, now that I work with a bunch of Go programmers mostly, and we're like just knocking services out all the time, like we do have problems, but they're not like ones of architecture. It's more like, how do we ensure that every component in this fleet is reliable and the requests are going the right way and that sort of thing. Right, but I mean, network requests do fail. Sure. And like, you have to no matter what. deal with that. Right. And that, well, and that, and that, I mean, that is the thing, right, is now you you do have to say, like, how does my app work if the auth service responded with a 502? Don't, don't extract auth. <laughs> like, step one, don't extract an auth service. But you know what I mean? Some piece of it that you need that to be up in order to continue. Sure. Which, I mean, Amazon is one of those nebulous, everybody knows they do SOA and it's probably right. well... But I mean, it is one of those things where if, you know, significant chunks of Amazon can be down and you just see less stuff and it's fine. Right. Partial responses, degraded availability, like doing something intelligent, fetching from a cache. These are all options that are right. I guess a thing I would be interested in is what does convention over configuration look like for doing services? Yeah, I agree with you that there are solutions. I think maybe... Because, like, everything you just said, like, yes, you can do those things. Those things are hard. Yeah. But so was, I mean, to pull from Eileen's keynote, right, there are many things that used to be really hard that Rails has now made really easy, right? Oh, yeah. Can we apply that same mentality? Yeah, no, I, I agree. Let's make action service a thing. I'm sure, I'm sure DHH will love it. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I'm more partial to, like, the people that I see exploring service-oriented architectures or microservice-oriented architectures don't need them and see them as a cure for a problem that they definitely have but are the wrong solution for. Yeah. Like In most cases, it's like, we've made a complete mess of this code base. We need to prevent ourselves from making this mess again. I um, completely agree. And so like they create several messes instead. So I actually I have a take on this. Uh, most people in the past who have built Rails applications do not need to do services at all. Their Rails applications are too small and their teams are too small. Agreeable so far? Yep, I'm with you. However, if you believe that it is more likely that your company will be a crazy runaway success on Ruby on Rails today than it has ever been in the past, then like there will be more companies of size like the Shopify's, GitHub's, DigitalOcean's, etc. of the world who have huge code bases and have huge teams for which doing services is appropriate. And so like, and actually this is again to borrow from Eileen's point, we are independently inventing solutions to these problems, but could they be in the light of day? Could Rails have a way of doing this? Because that's the way it's going, right? You're going to have larger companies on Rails with larger engineering teams doing more complicated things. And like, it just seems like a very natural solution to the problem to me. So let me ask you this though. Um, uh -huh. Because services are much more popular in Go, and people talk about how much easier it is to build it in Go, except sure. that really doesn't seem like that's because Go has so much there that's super helpful. Like, Go doesn't have anything that will help you, you know, with degraded availability. Well, it's an ecosystem thing, right? So, like, if you look at where the Ruby ecosystem comes from, right, <laughs> it's teeny tiny startups, solo founders, maybe a few more than that, like, building web applications, testing, and iterating quickly. 
all of our ecosystem, everything in it is sort of optimized and well-built for that context. I mean, you can literally see Rails has grown up with Basecamp growing up as a company if you like that analogy. Yeah. Go, on the other hand, literally comes from Google needs college students to be able to build reliable distributed systems all the time, right? And so there's like, it's not a language difference. It's like an ecosystem and tooling difference. And that means that we can borrow those parts of the ecosystem and the tools to like make improvements. It's really, to me, it's more about the conversation and the culture than it is about any necessary technical impedance. Okay, that makes sense. One thing I do find interesting in Ruby land, and I guess it's really not just Ruby, but I, I the threshold that is acceptable seems to be higher in Ruby, like exception levels and that level yes. being greater than zero. So like, I'm not saying that you you know you should never serve any 500 requests ever or your, or your application is terrible, but I, I think people allowing even as much as half a percent of requests to be 500 or anywhere even remotely close to that is sort of insane. And yet that seems to be, you know, somewhere between 0.1 and 0.5% seems to be the threshold that like we consider acceptable in this little chunk of the industry. Sure. I don't, I don't have an opinion on how often an application should 500, I guess. Never. Um. <laughs> right. Well, that's what I mean. Like crates.io, we are, are, are 500 other than when there was an incident and I got paged, we've had zero 5xx requests in the last week. Well, doesn't your Rust compiler make the overwhelming majority of those impossible? Yes. Cool. So <laughs> or at the very least, give, it forces us to handle them. Right. Give some reasonable error response. And I actually... This sort of comes back to my ecosystem tooling idea. Much of the tooling that Ruby gives you does not make it glaringly obvious how to deal with errors that can happen, right? So like a good example is Faraday. Do you put rescue Faraday client error literally everywhere you make a Faraday call? Because if you miss one of them, that's a source of exceptions, right? Right. And so like this is actually something I experimented with where we wrote a tiny wrapper around Faraday which rescues that error and like forces you to pass success and failure procs and then evaluates one of them based on whether or not an exception was raised. Mm. And so by doing that, right, you're sort of hacking the programmer's mind and forcing them to deal with that error. And we found that the exception rate on controllers that use that client instead of Faraday directly went <coughs> way down, right? Yeah. And so yeah. Th the point I was going to make is that like in languages like Go and Rust, you are forced to deal with errors. Right? They're weaved into how you're programming. And I actually do think this comes back to this conversation about microservices in Ruby, is if you're doing more things that are prone to failure, such as making HTTP requests, then we need new tooling that like is better for dealing with that. Right? Do you need new tooling or do you need a new language? Like like, what do you mean by new, what tool would make that easier than, like, it seems like other languages are just better designed for that. So. I'm not sure I agree with that. Okay. Um, I think Ruby is perfectly well suited to doing that. It's just that no one has really developed tooling that works in that way. Like the, the, the success failure callback is a really good example of this, right? Where you take your path, your params, what to do with the response and what to do with an exception. And like, you can't not pass all four of those. Right. right. Yeah. I like I like that uh, a lot better than some of the other proposals, like with result objects, because yes, result objects only work in Ruby for things that return a value, mm -hmm. and there are so many places that can fail, like calling dot save, where it doesn't have a return a meaningful return value, and it's super easy to just accidentally ignore sure. the result object. And actually, you know what? No one does. Hmm. No one rescues like the myriad of failure conditions between their application and the database. 
right right because they're making the assumption i mean i don't necessarily think that they should like in most cases you're making the assumption in that like uh, my application layer has validated that this is valid, and so I expect it to save. If it doesn't save, I really don't know what to do. I just oh, 500 is an appropriate response, right? And it's not until you get enough of those where it's like, okay, 500 is not an appropriate response here. How do I want to handle this? Yeah, I mean, it also depends on like if it, if it failed because oops, the database is down. I mean, first of all, one thing that you could just do is retry the whole the whole request. Right. I guess one common way it would fail that you would definitely want to do something about is when you have a uniqueness constraint and you have a lot of things being created at the same time, right? right. Um, and Rails, yep. in the next major version of Rails, will introduce a way to kind of, you instead of calling find or create by, you call create or find by or whatever, which helps solve that problem. But Sort of, except <laughs> it doesn't because the big issue there is that it opens you up to a different kind of race condition and if that one fails, it just aborts your entire transaction. Another way to put it is uh, you can't do this inside of a transaction because, right, this one tries the save first, and then if the save fails, it tries the find. Oh, right. If the save fails inside of a transaction, your transaction is now aborted. You cannot make any more queries until you have rolled back the transaction. Sure. In most cases, well, I don't know. I can't say most, but if you are aware of that condition, you can make that call. Like, I'm just thinking of, like, a standard controller where you're creating a user or something like that where you're not going to be doing anything inside of a transaction other than, like, I'm creating one record. That makes sense. And in cases where oh, I'm trying to think, yeah, it could, it's going to be an, an issue more than I would think. One of the things I want to do is if Rails is willing to drop support for Postgres versions less than 9.5, um, or at least only support this feature with Postgres 9.5 and up, for Postgres specifically, and actually on MySQL too, we can actually solve this by doing on-conflict do nothing. Mm-hmm. And then insert ignore on MySQL and insert or ignore on SQLite. Provided cool. that you're willing to live with the fact that things that differed outside of your new unique key or unique index wouldn't get updated. Yeah, which but I, I guess is true of finder create by, right? Yeah, it's already true. Yeah, you're gonna lose the second one regardless, right? Yep. Yep. You know, I mean, then we could just do upsert, but as I think we discussed last week, right? Upsert is really really impossible to abstract over in a way that like works on every backend yes we did discuss it and i will take your word for it <laughs> <laughs> well i didn't hear that discussion because it hasn't been released yet so yeah. <laughs> fine. just imagine it being amazing <laughs> i'm i'm sure it'll be wonderful give us but a I reader's mean, digest version sean the uh upsert-esque capabilities of the backends that we support are fundamentally different in a way that like we can't it's not even a question of providing a common interface what they can or cannot do is is different in incompatible ways cool <laughs> and you can't abstract over that with carefully constructed transactions not while retaining the actual semantics of upsert no okay cool i mean we can it just then becomes non-atomic and that kind of defeats the whole point oh <laughs> uh upset so derek rest yes. versus graphql <laughs> i love graphql <laughs> yeah how's it going um i haven't done a lot of it lately since i rotated off a project that was using it but like i explored it with other folks and like and every time like i see conference talks on it or whatever there were a number of conference talks at RailsConf that i i don't think i saw any of them because i had other things to do like record many episodes of a podcast but i think there were at least three or four graphql talks or workshops right we had so many GraphQL proposals this year. So I was on the program committee this year. Mm -hmm. it, it was definitely the single biggest theme that you could identify in all the proposals. And yeah, it seems really in the moment. 
And it seems to be like deservedly like it's not just like I don't think it's just like a whoa This is cool. Let's do it. I think it actually does solve a lot of problems for people that people are experiencing I do worry that like as somebody who gave a talk on rest basically extolling its virtues as a way to let it guide you toward good code uh -huh. We need to recreate all of those conventions in GraphQL land sure and that scares me a little bit particularly as it re in regards to doing GraphQL in Rails apps I don't enjoy the experience of the GraphQL Ruby implementation um, because it's not it's mm -hmm. DSL heavy with no underlying object model at this point, although I know it's on their radar of things to provide where I, I'd really just rather write classes <laughs> and maybe I'm in the, I don't think I'm in the minority from the number of people that I've talked to. It's like, yeah, I kind of just wish this was classes, but you know, I don't know. So in Ruby land, I, I'm a little less excited about it as I am just as a whole, like the idea of GraphQL overall. How about you, Sam? Yeah, I have not actually done any GraphQL, but mm. I have recently been playing with a new database called dgraph. Uh, which is a graph database, and it presents an API that they call GraphQL Plus, and it looks an awful lot like GraphQL, but it basically supports special functions for querying over their graph. And yeah, like I, I sort of get the idea of like I have these things, and I want their relational these things, and then go through there. And but like you also have the ability to say recurse to leaf nodes or find me the shortest path between these two things, and then like attaching GraphQL style queries to the, all of that. Um, and I've been finding it very enjoyable. We're actually wrapping this in a gRPC layer because of course we are. See the previous podcast episode that I was on. And yeah, it's nice. Also, graph databases are cool. <laughs> I'll take your word for that. I haven't used a graph database, I don't think ever. But I am looking at yeah. the dgraph. We'll, we'll link to this in the show notes and there. It does look very, the query language looks very GraphQL-y. Yeah. There's some things that are I don't, I don't recognize here, but other than that. Yeah, it, it's like, so So the problem we have is like, there are various ways in which users can be linked together at DigitalOcean. So like this user referred that user who paid with this credit card that was also used by this user that created a team and like then sort of recursing through links. And so we found it was impossible to express certain things that we were trying to do with a SQL query. Like the query would be very, very big and complicated and recursive. And so, yeah, it's been great high leverage for us to reduce the complexity of how much code we have to write to find out information about our users. It's a little beta-y. We've had some problems where like network partitions occur and transactions deadlocked and whatever, but the team from dgraph seems to be working on that really well. It's definitely new. Mm -hmm. Yeah, we, so we compared it with Neo4j and we really liked Neo4j but in order to be able to do online backups with Neo4j, you have to be able to buy an enterprise license, and we were not interested in doing that. So, aren't you guys an enterprise? <sighs> sure. <laughs> Basically, we didn't want to invest that much money until we had proven the concept a little bit more, and at that point, it was easier to switch underlying database technology than do that. Sure. No, and I think for, for a graph database, I mean, GraphQL as a basis for the query language, which makes a lot of sense. Yeah. I mean, they, they both have graph in the name, so you'd hope. Right? <laughs> you would hope those things go well together. I don't really see, like, GraphQL, when I'm using it with a relational database, to be, like, a graph database really much at all. Uh, maybe that's just my limited experience with it, but, like, it's just a way to query a database so, to so me. The thing is, right, 
if you do a very recursive GraphQL query, you know, like users into teams, into users, into teams, into users, into teams, right. that's going to create a huge join yes, exactly. on your database. Yes. Whereas like with a graph database, it won't, right? So like you can express queries in GraphQL that will get translated very inefficiently on top of a relational database. Yes, fair. <laughs> and, and actually, this is this is one of the biggest points I remind people of when they talk about GraphQLs. That like, if you're using it as a straight replacement for like Rails and RESTful, it's usually very easy to reason about the number of joins a RESTful endpoint is going to do, and much harder to do that with a GraphQL query. I, d- I just want to mention like users into teams into users into teams. Like you can just do that with a recursive CTE very easily. Great. <laughs> Sean, how do you express a recursive CTE in Active Record? Find by SQL with with CTE. <laughs> <laughs> it's funny that like you you say find by SQL. It's it's funny because if by the time this comes out, people may have seen DHH's. If they weren't at RailsConf, may have had a chance to see DHH's keynote where he talks about like I don't ever have to write find by SQL anymore. And like I spent all week this week in my client work writing custom SQL strings, <laughs> like not full find by SQLs, but writing custom joins and writing like yeah, I do that all the time. So I don't know what kind of app he's writing, but I find it hard to believe that there's no, maybe there's no find by SQL, but I find it hard to believe there's no custom joins or anything like that. My thought there is that you can pretty much express any join that you would like with active record, right? It's just that at some point you're doing gymnastics and it's much faster to write the SQL expression if you're good at SQL, right? But there are probably a whole army of developers who aren't, who can do the active record gymnastics. Or I think, I think, in my case, it would be Rubyland gymnastics because, like, often when I find I want to do this, it's like I have a. It, it basically boils down to what I want there to be is a parameterized scope, sure. uh, or a parameterized association on this user, for instance. And so mm-hmm. I want to take the current post or whatever and join it to authors, but I want to join it to authors with a condition on the user. So I want like to join on, you know, a dot id equals b dot aid, and something else and you i can't guys do, that. do that in the where clause um yeah. you can unless you're doing something like you're left joining for the purposes of saying i want to find all the records that don't have an associated yeah. record over here because your where clause then needs to be where you know the joined in record id not null sure yeah yep. or uh, yeah something like at that. which point yeah i would argue you could then just do like a sub select in your where clause but at that point you are still now dropping down to sql so that doesn't help right right well, wait you can put a relation in a relation, right? Like, I can pass a fully formed relation into a WAC clause, right? Yeah, you can. You're not supposed to. Um, <laughs> no, no. I mean, it's 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 supported. It's public API. What you really want isn't even where not in. You want, you want where not exists. And right. that you can't express with public API. Right. But I do that all the time by saying where, and then I pass a relation, and then I call a rel, and then I call exists. And, then <laughs> and it works just you fine. You can totally do that. Um, and that's well, you, how can also would... do, you can also do just do is not null, right, instead of exists. Right. Well, that, but that requires you to have done it as a left join. Sure. I do left joins have... all the time. Right. But then you have to, that's what we're talking about, is then you have to drop down to SQL to do your custom on clause. Right. Because that if you're if you're going about it that way and you have a secondary condition, you you do specifically need it to be in the on clause if your where clause is going to be where the right side is null. And for whatever reason on this project, I just keep having to do that thing where I'm like, I want to find <laughs> all of the records in X that don't have an associated Y. 
and it's like oh okay i keep having to write this thing again and i really wish there was i really wish i could call joins and pass like an additional condition to tack onto the joins or something like that yeah well so i think we get just on came that. up with our feature request for yeah. rails from the episode <laughs> we'll send it to eileen and we'll make <laughs> <laughs> Like this is a, there's a super obvious API for this if relation is not a thing that exists. Like if there's an object that represents a table, then yeah, you call dot on on that, mm -hmm. and then that and then that's super obvious and you pass that in. If there and if there's a way to express a fragment of a where clause other than a hash or an entire or a thing that represents an entire query, like the problem is with relations API, there's there's no obvious way for us to to introduce a pleasant syntax for expressing what you want in your on clause. What if that was a dot table method on the active record class? Sure. I mean, yes, Fair. there is. And there is. A private API, and <laughs> it, it kinda, it's kind of shitty to use. <laughs> what if we made it a good public API in time for Rails 6, Sean? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> time for Rails 6. Yeah. Good luck. <laughs> but he did say we, so I think he just volunteered to do it. I mean... With your tutelage. So there you go. The main thing is still just decoupling relation from the rest of Rails to the extent that we can move it to a gem. Because mm. we can't even begin to explore alternate query builder APIs un unless we're able to swap that. Because I'm sure I'm never going to deprecate relation. Like, that needs to continue to work until the end of time because there's too much sure. Rails code depending on it that's not going to migrate. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I agree. Did you have anything else that you quickly wanted to cover, Sam? Quickly? Gosh, I don't cover anything quickly. Uh, <laughs> Am I allowed to say that we're hiring? Yeah, yeah. go ahead. Yeah, so um, DigitalOcean is hiring for a bunch of different engineering teams. Uh, it would be wonderful if you could join us. You can check out our jobs posting on our website. It's good. If you want to join another team, <laughs> <laughs> you can go to thoughtbot.com slash jobs, where at present, I think there are 26 different job openings or something like that. So uh, check out that site and apply to jobs, please. Cool. And then if, none of, if none of those suit your needs, then I guess you can go see DigitalOcean. But... <laughs> And I guess I'll, I, I guess I'll stick a link to the Shopify jobs posting in the in the show notes. We've got like 170 something openings right now. Yeah. Thanks for joining us, Sam. If people want to follow you, they can follow you on Twitter at Sam Fippen, Correct. Yes. All right. Do so. Show notes for this episode can be found at bikeshed.fm. As always, rings and reviews on iTunes are much appreciated. If you have feedback on this episode or any of our other episodes, you can tweet us at underscore bikeshed, email us at hosts at bikeshed.fm, or leave a comment on the website. Thanks for listening to Bike Shed, and we'll see you next time. This podcast was brought to you by ThoughtBot. We are experienced designers and developers who turn your idea into the right product. With local studios in Boston, San Francisco, New York, London, Austin, and Raleigh, let's build something great together.